you don't realize it when you're doing it by the way you don't think you're radically different and you do where your heart and your brain is leading you you have to do what you enjoy doing and enjoy what you are doing Thanks for joining us for Building Pakistan, a conversation with Pakistan's beloved institution builders to explore how they've built and really continue to build this young country. I'm Benji Williams from Amal Academy, and in today's conversation, we get to meet with Mrs. Seema Aziz, who's the co-founder and managing director of CFAM, where she took one small fashion retail shop she started in Shadman Market in Lahore in 1985 and built it into one of Pakistan's largest fashion retailers with over 450 outlets throughout three different regions of the world and currently 12 different brands including Barise, Leisure Club, Chenere, Working Woman, Mini Minor and literally seven other brands. What's incredible is that she has done this while also starting and growing Care Foundation into one of Pakistan's largest education NGOs. blossoming from one school that she planted in 1991 to over 860 schools that they're operating throughout the country today. She's a true serial entrepreneur who has done an unbelievable amount for this country despite all the odds and the skepticism and the discouragement and the challenges and the frustrations. And she's still plugging away, meeting each day with a relentless work ethic and faith facing roadblocks with her beloved smile and infectious energy and continuing the journey with a never take no perseverance and there's really so much to love admire and learn from her I'm wondering should we jump into it I Yes sure okay great so in terms of the context I mean I I don't want to say too much and and I personally don't want to be talking too much but we first met in 2012 we had a chance to pilot a small part of our amul fellowship within a care school and i remember at the time just being in awe of what you had built and what care as an organization had built at that point and of course that was 5 years ago now and in 2017 you've gone from what was at that point i think a few hundred schools to 866 is the latest number and i'm sure this will be changing very soon and right now you're at around 270 students and i think at that time in 2012 i didn't really 270,000 students um which i'm also sure will be changing very soon and at the time i think i barely really knew about cfam and then quickly found out what an enterprise this is and you, you literally can't drive down a street without seeing either a Barise or one of your 12 brands. And so it's just a bit mind-boggling and incredible and I I really want to rewind time a little bit to go back when when Cfam first started. This was 1985. And probably I guess 32 years ago and not necessarily the first year but the first few years, 85, 86, 87, 88. Um, and maybe and running and and Brise as a brand and you know what eventually became the institution or the enterprise that it is today. 
So thank you, um, Benji. And it's so it's really 1985, 6th of April 1985 is when we opened our first store, uh, our first outlet. But the journey really started, and I guess the biggest challenges were a year before mm. when we got the idea. And the idea was to create a product equal in quality to the best in the world, but made in Pakistan. And uh, my father worked in a multinational all his life. And when he retired is when he actually got, bought these three embroidery machines, which are large Swiss 15-yard embroidery machines, which, which um, uh, is basically the fabric that we produce today. So, so when my brother and I uh, sort of uh, graduated hmm. college and we said, huh? You know, that's when realization comes in at a certain level. And we said, oh, my God, look at it. The Swiss have the same. So our machines were Swiss. And that's where the embroidery industry is really, I think, I believe that that's where the modern embroidery industry is, you know, uh, rooted in is, is, is Swiss. And that's the benchmark. But anyway, so we, we said, ah, the Swiss have the same machines as we do. Look at what they produce and look at what we produce. Hmm. And we're going to make equal quality and just about everybody said you're crazy you're crazy you're just about everyone and our father got really angry and he said you really lost it there's no way that we can make quality products in pakistan because at that time now more than 33 years ago so products made made in pakistan were inexpensive and not necessarily of very good quality all fabric and maybe products which were desired, desirable and expensive were foreign, hmm. imported, imported or smuggled. So, so we just started, we were young and crazy. That's the only hmm. explanation I have. Hmm. And uh, so we were young you and were crazy. You were at that time 34, I think I read? Yeah. Okay. So yes, absolutely. 33, 34, yeah, 33, I guess, okay. when we started. Yes. So, and um, so it was just a time when you believe you can do anything. Hmm. And we, we're not really a business family and no, have no history. And not even today, any other women in business in my hmm. entire family. But yes, so we started. We started with, you know, you, you had to find the right uh, quality of fabric, then the right quality of dyes, then, you know, it was a process, then tweaking our own embroidery machines to produce the quality that we wanted. Took us many months to achieve that. And then, of course, where will we sell them? Hmm. Uh, if you make something so different, where will you sell it? And we checked all the uh, the retail channels in the, uh, in the region and understood uh, that it was not possible. People just, you know, made product and gave it to retailers who would give you money when they sold it, if ever, whatever. Mm. And we realized if you want make something so different, then you have to retail it yourself. Mm. And so we put together. And since nobody believed in us and it was our own money, and uh, we managed to get a little basement shop in uh, in in Shadman Market, which was where uh, all the women went to buy the good foreign um, foreign fabric. Hmm. We got this little basement shop and set it up. And that opened its doors on hmm. the 6th of April 1985. And while we were setting it up, uh, a lot of the shopkeepers from around 
came and would um, uh, see, you know, came to see what was happening because we were a different sort of people building a different shop. And lots of them said, and, and you think you guys can sell this Pakistani product in this market? Mm. It's never going to happen. So we had many offers of people saying, if you give us the whole lot, we can stamp it with made as France or made as Japan and we'll sell it. And we said, no, no, we'll put the whole lot in the middle of the park and set it on fire if it doesn't sell. But we're not going to do any such thing. Hmm. And so actually the first lots quickly we learned from that and we quickly there was a made in Pakistan stamp on every yard of fabric that we were selling. But some of the stamps went crooked and some ran. And anyway, hmm. the moment we opened store, Everybody who walked in just loved what we had. And uh, everybody would say, this is not Pakistani. It has to be imported. And it was a job convincing people that no, the, the quality, whatever we were selling was made in Pakistan. Right. And then we got this little reputation of a, a shop which sells imported fabric and calls it made in Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, but then that, that taught us also. Uh, later, of course, we... We were selling faster than we could produce, but so nobody's a fabric today has any stamp on it. Mm. And we learned from that experience of the early years that anybody can create or forge any stamp. Mm. And so our fabric will never bear a stamp which can be copied, but people should be able to touch it and feel it and see it and know that this is Barize. Mm. And uh, that's um, mm. how we started. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I read um, that they would ask, okay, well, it's not imported, then why is it so expensive? Absolutely. <laughs> which is the flip side, which yeah. is which is yeah. so great. Yes. And, yes. Um, and one thing that I am wondering and really curious about is, so you had this first location or retail location in Shadman in the basement. And then what came after that? Uh, what was the next expansion and, and what was the growth like? So very quickly, within a couple of months, you know, we people were standing outside for fabric which would come in from the production units. Hmm. And uh, so soon we knew we had a hugely successful experiment on our hands. And so we opened another shop which was in, got acquired a little store in Liberty Market. Okay. And took this a whole like exhibition. like a year or two afterwards? I think it was like... Uh, maybe eight months later or, oh, uh, or a year max. And then eight months later, what we did is take an exhibition to Karachi. By mm. the end of that year, it was that we took an exhibition to Karachi mm. and a three-day, four-day exhibition. By the second day, we'd sold out to a hotel. We went to the Marriott Karachi and, you know, that's how people would, you know, I'm still, I should suppose, still do the same thing. Mm. Took an exhibition to try the test the waters. And by the second day, we sold out everything. We were making desperate calls to Lahore and saying, can you send anything else that is sitting in our shops? And of course, by the last day, sorry, it was a three-day exhibition. And uh, by the last day, we've, of course, there were women fighting over every last piece hmm. and pulling from two directions. So that made us realize. Uh, and there were people who came to, you know, older women who would say, you know, just say thank you so much for giving us cotton because we started as a pure cotton enterprise and then we added some silk, but we still are today a, either a pure cotton or a pure silk enterprise hmm. because we felt that in this country with the heat and the climate and the, how it works, the polyesters and the viscose and the artificial fibers 
are really not comfortable for people to wear in the summer especially and so we we had people coming in to you know kissing our hands literally and saying thank you so much for giving us cotton to wear and uh, we so within um, maybe six months of that exhibition we had opened our first store in Karachi, in Karachi. then in Islamabad and then we just kept going hmm. another store in Karachi and uh, Islamabad another one was much later but then another city so today we are, then of course a few years later we thought ah how long is the fabric going to sell we should do ready to wear hmm. and so we started our first ready to wear brand for people from age 4 to 14 okay. and we called it leisure club and this was late 90s they just did their 20th year okay. so it was yes it was 96, 96 i think actually okay. so roughly 10 years later so about 10 years later we launched leisure club and did really well again the concept and the vision has remained the same mm. quality equal to the best in the world made in pakistan mm. so um very soon it was so exciting when people who were buying Leisure Club for their children would say, you know, we used to, when we traveled abroad, we would bring back things from Marks and Spencer or Mother Care as gifts for people. And now we take Leisure Club as gifts for our friends abroad. And That's then we started fun. another branch soon, maybe four years later, called Mini Miners, which was for newborn to age five years. And so we've gone on and today we have about 13 brands. Hmm and about 500 outlet and can yes. you talk a little bit about the the marketing because i understand initially it was a lot of word of mouth uh especially you know your initial store but i imagine with the number of st outlet stores that you eventually had i mean word of mouth can only go so far so what was the marketing strategy from sort of the early days to towards that expansion um, in Liberty Market, Karachi, Islamabad. So really, marketing's not been something that we've ever mm. done a lot of. And I can't believe you saying that, how far can word of mouth go? Mm. The best advertisement, I sincerely believe, is happy customers. And that's what would happen in the beginning. You know, after Eid or something like that, where a lot of people would meet people, mm. we'd have this huge increase in sales, you know, because everybody who saw people wearing barise would, you know, scores more would come back to buy it. And honestly, well, we now do, I guess, uh, a fair amount of marketing. Barise, the brand, is still very, very conservative. It must have been six, seven, eight years ago that we ever put up the first billboard or mm. I think the first catalog we ever uh, put together of the product must have been not more than eight years ago. Mm. But yes, and I sincerely believe about marketing is this hugely, um, uh, uh, there's this huge hype, but you know, marketing brings people to your stores but once. Mm. It's really product is king. I believe if you have, it's, it's only if you have the no amount of marketing will sell a faulty product, not more than once or not more than one season or one year. And we've forever concentrated much more on product and on the quality of what we make. And we believe that small amounts of marketing should, you know, bring people to our store once. And that's then, uh, it's then the quality of the product that should make mm. them want to come back mm. again.
And, and to this point on geographical expansion, I mean, you guys are now beyond the major cities. And I read a really interesting quote from you about the challenge of expansion, that one thing that hampers us making informed choices about where to open next is the lack of market information. Because uh, things are undocumented, there's no way that you can determine the size of the market uh, share. And so it's hard to evaluate, is this the right city to go into? Is this the right city? Any comments, any experience that you like entered into the wrong city or that you entered into a city that surprised you? That's still true. That's exactly the uh, the. the situation on the ground. Mm. But yes, see, so there was pretty much just us for many, many years. We were we were absolutely the first brands of Pakistan. And for many years, there was pretty much nothing which was a Pakistani brand in the retail space. This whole explosion happened, I think, in the last 10 or 11 years, maybe after 9-11. Suddenly, you know, people started looking at the home market. Otherwise, I would be telling everyone in any forum I was, I'd say, why don't you sell locally? The way to go is the home market. It's a wide open space and nobody was ever interested. So now there's the, the retail space is, is so dynamic. There's this huge growth in, in retail. And so just the fact that there are so many more brands and so many more people in the retail spaces, it's not like our information has increased, but um, it's, it's, um, it's still research. You go out there and you sort of survey different cities. and uh, But there's other people also who are now doing that. Mm. So one brand or the other arrives in a city and you get the feedback that that's a good place. But really, the retail landscape has totally been transformed mm. in Pakistan. I think there's a huge growing middle class. And the smallest of cities now, um, I don't know, I think I have not, I don't know exactly how many cities we are in, hmm. but it must be 40 or 50 at least yeah. different uh, there's cities. This, there's this great quote from Zane, who's uh, managing Burize Man and I think one or two other brands. And he said, demand in places like uh, Mundi, Bahuddin and Swat is unbelievable. That's and correct. there's this huge sort of rising middle class or huge rising demand from perhaps different parts of society. And I think we have a temptation to forget that or a tendency to forget that market. I think that's a new development, meaning it's something that has come up over the last uh, 10 years. But you could be right. Nobody looked at that before. Mm. And uh, yes, there's huge the demands in all sorts of small cities, Hafsabad, Shekhupura, um, Bihari. I think we're, we're, there are brands now in any small city you go to, you know, some sort of shopping malls are coming up and, mm. and brands are there. So we still don't know what market share anybody has. and um, but it's it's there's a so there's more energy out there now and more people working on the same and 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 therefore more information floating around. But it is truly uh, a, a huge market. Mm. The 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 whole market in Pakistan is. I huge. I, I want to get to to care, but before that, just one last question um, on the CFAM kind of initial five years or so about this issue of doubt, that a lot of entrepreneurs might doubt, like, I guess there's 
two types of doubt. One, is this going to be sustainable? Is it viable? Will it last? And then the second, which is, is this a good way to spend a life? Does it matter? Is it purposeful? Any experience that you could share from those first like five years or so of doubt and how you moved or, or lived through that doubt? So one, uh, you know, it's a very interesting question. So, so when we were young and crazy, there was not an expectation that we had to start a business and then it should grow that well. And I don't know, for me, it was just something that we were doing, which was really exciting. Mm. And to today, and at all times, whenever I've thought it through, I feel that a business is not about making lots of money. It's about creating great products or creating a great service and doing the right thing and money follows. And so maybe we were not worrying that much. We were on Honestly, way more concerned about how good our product was. Are we doing the right thing? So the challenges that you keep talking about were, so the challenges would be, yes, the, the, the system, the governments, the regulations can be challenging and I guess were, but um, the challenges were in how to create the quality. And soon after the first, um, you know, Karachi, Islamabad and Lahore, you didn't really find markets where you could open stores. And so finding the right space in smaller cities, at that time, Faisalabad had no uh, market. Hmm. Remember going many times to find, we knew that there was you know, a lot of people, a lot of money in Faisalabad, but finding a place or a, or a market or, a, or a, to where you could make a store and sell was honestly really difficult mm. and the same goes with even very large cities where we are now with like Gujarawala. So the, this retail space wasn't developed mm. and that was one of the challenges to find the right space and it was really going to a place, surveying, going again to see one, do you think things will sell here? And what was the thing which was going to tell us that mm. in Feslawada, I remember there were just a few food shops and one good bakery and that was it hmm. and very small store so it was a lot of judgment and so the about finding the right retail space and knowing whether we're walking into the right city or not interesting so those were the challenges yeah. and um, no we weren't worrying a lot about how big we will grow hmm. or, or not grow and so coming to the care part of the journey which is equally fascinating. 1988, there were these really bad floods in Shekupara. And you, your family went there, managed to build, I think, about 80 homes, and then were overwhelmed by the community and the parents and, and the children saying, we also need schools. And so I think spent a couple years in the planning phase and then 1991, January, you opened your very first school. And one of the questions, I want to get into the details, but I also want to ask, like, why was this the right time to start a school? I mean, you had been working at CFAM for six or seven years versus if this had happened maybe four or five years before, would that have been the wrong time? Were you in a place that you could jump into another project or did you just jump into it not really knowing what you were getting into? Well, so first, uh, so the flood was in 1988. Yeah. So it was just three years later. 
I think it has nothing to do with the business whatsoever because the business is not making a lot of money in three years. Just remember that. Mm. Uh, I think it took us many more years than that to draw any money from the business. If it was growing, it was growing, but it was just growing by um, money being just all the money being put back into that business. So, like um, the business was still fully consuming your time. Is oh, I guess what I wanted to absolutely, understand. Absolutely, absolutely. It's not like you had extra time to go work on a, a, a philanthropic project necessarily. So uh, I don't know what if. Yeah. So so what happened is when we so there was this terrible flood. It was not just in Sheikhupura. It was mm, across yeah, yeah. the Punjab, yeah. and uh, it was terrible. They tried to save the city of Lahore and broke an embankment with the result that the city of Lahore got saved and hmm. hundreds of villages were totally devastated. They got a like a three, four hour notice and that was it. And mud homes just got, you know, the, the water just took away mud homes and we decided we have to do something and government was not being able to do a lot. So we borrowed a jeep from somebody and went, drove through the high flood and, you know, started with food and water and then with medicines and found out how unhappy people were and, you know, how little support was reaching. Mm. And then I realized that what we really needed to do was build homes because everybody had lost homes and food and water somehow gets taken care of after a while. So we thought about building 10 homes. And of course, you couldn't stop there because mm. every time we, we, we got all the lists, picked 10 people out of all the lists that we got and, gave them the first installment when we went back for the second installment. So we were giving the money in installments because, you know, people had lost everything, all their grain, all the food, everything. And we thought if we gave them the money together, the homes may not be built and mm. they might just be eat, eat the money, you know, obviously mm. use the money for food. So when we went for the next installment, we had many people pulling at us and saying, look at us, we've lost everything too. So we took on another home and another and then, you know, similarly, we ended up building about 85 homes. And uh, in that process, obviously, I was there to help people rebuild uh, every day and got totally involved. So everybody else, like after three months, you know, my brother and everybody said, now, you know, we have to go back and do other things in life too. And mm. I just couldn't let go, I guess. Maybe I'd never seen such a disaster at such close quarters and so much poverty and so much disease. It's just 15 miles out of Lahore and there was no drinking water, no mm. sewage, no electricity and, and clearly no schools. So soon I became like this Pied Piper and hundreds of children, hundreds of children and women would follow me around all day, every day and all barefoot, all runny noses, all matted hair. And one day I just said, why do the children follow me around every day? Why don't they go to school? And everybody in the women said, there's no school. And I said, by then what I'd realized is that Floods would come, a flood might come again next year and would take their homes away again. Mm. And would they look for somebody like me to help them rebuild? That was just the burning question. And I'm thinking, what's the difference between them and me? And honestly, I understood with clarity, it was only an education, only and only. I was educated and I could do multiple things. I could plead a cause, I could plan, I could do many things. In their illiteracy, they were totally helpless. They'd lost everything. Nobody even wanted to believe what they were saying. So I said, what if I build a school? Hmm. 
and the women were so excited they just said after that you stop these houses you build this school. every day they say stop the houses build the school so i came back and uh, you know kept talking to my friends and my family and everybody around me and everybody said and you've now totally gone mad don't you know that the poor don't want to study there are hundreds of government schools around all standing empty mm. and i remember saying no if there is no school see one that i said i spent so much time with the poor and i understand that everybody but everybody loves their children just like we do and everyone wants a better life for their children and would like their children to be educated if the schools don't exist we are at fault but if i build a school and nobody comes then i will have done my bit and i won't you know i'll go back to doing what i was mm. doing forever but mm. i have to build the school mm. so i required this piece of land which was actually donated and I you know when I put the word out somebody came forward to say you know can we help you in whatever and I said I want to build a school you know I need land and so somebody actually donated that piece of land and I put together the money and built that first school hmm. and this was uh and you guys opened I think January 17th 17th of January 1991, 1991. so yeah. 250 children were standing outside and hmm. still all barefooted all barefoot all runny noses all matted hair mm. trousers no top and top no trousers and they'd all lined up for a chance to a better life and mm. we just started and uh, we had to create a curriculum and i understood then learned lots in that process of creating and starting that school and when i had to decide what they had to study i realized with clarity it had to be what i had studied and what my children had studied So and, and how were you managing this um in addition to Cfam because I read that for four years the first four years you were driving yourself out to Sheikh Cooper every day through even through the flood I used to be driving myself every day to <laughs> to the village and back and almost every day right and when I guess it had to be every day and so how yeah. were you I remember counting to... all the bricks and worrying that if somebody stole a brick my school won't be made mm. I I learned methods of counting bricks you know so it was very worrying and yet the family was still growing Barisa yes. was still growing yes yes how yes. were you able to juggle you this? know you do so many things in life and i keep thinking lots of people ask me this question i keep thinking there must be other people to do multiple things mm. and above and beyond all of that and first first for me was my family mm. my children my home my family my parents that commitment was always is the number one commitment mm. so and, ba- so back then what was would have been a day in the life of mrs aziz what would be like your plan for the morning what time would you get up what, where would you go so see i used to always drive my children to school okay. myself so um then was um was was he just joined hsn that's how that whole story of uh, that was the curriculum i picked up and he joined hsn that year and i simply picked up that curriculum which was very simple it's the same curriculum that i'd studied in those days people didn't change curriculum all the time you know there were good solid books had been going on for years and um, uh, so i always drop my children to school and i used to pick them up myself so the start of the day was very easy drop the children to school and go off to the care school or whether it was being built or whatever was happening and then be back in time to pick them up but in the middle i was doing something else too 
I'd done law and uh, I'd taken the law exam in 1986 and 87 hmm. for whatever good reasons. I was practicing law too wow. and I'd rushed back from there to the law office and then home before we, if I was not picking them up, then before the children. That for me has always been a priority, to be home when my children come back to school from school, if I'm not picking them up. For the vast majority of the time, I was picking them up. Mm. If there was ever a reason to, you know, somebody else would pick them up, which was very rare, then I had to be there before that time. So mm. I just juggled that all and balanced it. Remember negotiating with the law firm that I was working with, they started work at nine and there was a time, a whole time, I guess it must have been in the school holidays that I said, can I come in earlier? <laughs> if I can come in at seven or so, then I could plan my day better. Hmm. And they did. We, I think we worked out for a while that I should have a separate key and I could walk in and do my work. And, you know, and when whatever. were you finding the time for CFAM? Was that in the afternoon? It was all in the middle. Okay. So it's all in the middle. Multitasking, I... I believe only women can do it. I thought everybody could do it. But I, if you come on a working day, then I still enjoy doing multiple things at the I'm same time. I'm very good at it's, it's great fun. Actually, it's very exciting uh, to be able to. So a lot of things, like even in the first school. So I was very sure that the children had no time to waste. And I, we were pretty much doing two years' work in one year in an area which was 100% illiterate and we couldn't find teachers, mm. I set up a curriculum and made a system and the, our teachers would watch every child. So that we, were doubled, we were jumping children. Uh, jumping, we were getting children to jump classes mm. simply based on their ability to get to the next class. And so a lot of things, all I'm trying to say is that a lot of things that we think are going to take 10 years or 8 years or don't really need to do that. Mm. There is many things which if you uh, plan them well, you can do much more in a day and much more in a school year than you know we, we, we plan for at this time. So I feel that if you really uh, put more into your day and plan it right, it makes you much more efficient. Mm. And I think that's what I must have done. It wasn't consciously done. It's a habit of life. I do it now all the time too. I just, if I haven't got my day planned the night before, I honestly, I wouldn't know what to do. Hmm. I, I'd feel totally lost. So I always have uh, at least the next day totally written down and planned. Hmm. Amazing. Um, I want to jump back to the model of care because you started out with these purpose-built schools and then built the second school in 94 and then a third in 98 and at the same time in 98 there was this opportunity with um, adopting government schools with mm -hmm. the city district government schools and so I wanted to ask how did that come about what was the decision process like if you could take us back to this opportunity is there was it a no-brainer like yes let's definitely do it did you go back and forth about whether this fits with our vision and our mission what was that decision process like so you didn't ask what's the vision and the mission I did not ask but yes. I kind of have an idea <laughs> so to from day one actually even if it was small the dream was to provide a quality, marketable education to as many children mm. of Pakistan as possible. And so if you keep that in mind, and honestly it was 
so easy the first years of care is all i can ever say you know we just started and um, i guess i trained people if there were many difficulties honestly i that's not what's top of my memory or uh, or there was nothing which was a game stopper by the end of the year by december word had gotten around there's a school where education happens and next year we had 450 children and next year we had a thousand children and it was just too easy and that's why we built the second school and that on the opening day of every school we in some schools you've had 400 children on day 1 mm-hmm. and i'm talking of rural schools and then the third one by then i was already worrying my children were fabulous they i think 97 was our first graduating class no 95 because we were jumping classes 95 was our first matriculation and everyone passed of course with really good marks and we started a little college at the request of the community the community said now you start a college and first i said to them no no i've done this is all i'm going to do they came back a month later and said where are the girls going to do go you'll have to start a college and mm-hmm. i understood i said you're right and i'm wrong so we started uh, the two years of college up to fa and the results out of that were fabulous too and i was somehow already worrying about how to get to every child it was too easy too easy honestly the problems if they were are 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 insignificant and so when government called me and said our schools don't do you know are, are terrible and why do your schools do so well is that's exactly what they said and so i was already wanting to you know get to somehow a bigger uh, bigger audience and mm. be able to do more so i surveyed about 25 schools in the city of lahore was the biggest shock of my life this our city which we think is the cultural heart of the country and any school the schools were in a mess that it, they were really really bad any school we walked into first children were marked present who were never present and teachers were marked present who were never present and then there was you know children were sweeping the floors and making tea for the teachers and sitting guard duty and running chores and sitting on broken floors with sometimes no ceiling no drinking water anything was happening but in education and i realized that you know with all those children who were sitting on the, those broken floors in their neat little uniforms with their little bags waiting for an education to happen which was never going to happen and mm. we better so we agreed to adopt the 10 government schools mm. of course there were unions and there it was one thing to agree and then it was a process to get a contract signed which we could live with and they could live with so it must have taken us about 6 months to do that and We walked into the first ten government schools on the first of September, nineteen ninety-eight. And since then, I think a couple hundred schools, additional government schools were adopted by CARE. And yes. then, I would love to talk about this inflection point in two thousand fifteen, because mm. from my understanding, the government wasn't necessarily providing any funding for those schools, even for the operating expenses, teacher salary, nothing. and that presents a whole um a whole suite of challenges but in 2015 something interesting happened and now you adopted an additional 400 plus schools under i think the um, path program the P- public school support program pssp program pssp program and we're able to get some kind of operating expense so i just wonder like 
Can you talk us through this reflection point a little bit? How was it that you were able to get to that? So we'll have to step back. The okay. real inflection point was in, I think, 2003, mm. when we might have had 30 or 40 government schools in total. And the, the devolution had happened in Lahore had a mayor. Uh, the city district, Nazim, the mayor of Lahore, was some of the was the one person really it was a huge amount of support and um, he requested us to adopt 140 schools together that was the huge inflection from us from wherever we were at 35 40000 children we adopted 140 schools together mm. and uh, which which government handed over to us 50,000 children, but we only found 40,000 there or something. But anyway, so doubled our numbers. Hmm. So we shook for a whole uh, year, but we managed to stabilize and uh, continue to turn those schools around. So the government schools we adopted then and the 140 and whatever we were at 2014 is where we'll go to. We were already at 200,000 children in uh, actually... 586 government schools. We, if we count the double shift schools, so we from empty government schools, we managed to turn them around and soon had to put double shifts in because enrollments quadrupled. Hmm. In some schools, they went up a thousand times. We took a school over with 50 girls, and we today have. 1,500 girls there or took over closed schools, which have Double over a thousand. Means, like means they would come in the morning uh, and, and a new set of children in the afternoon. and a new set of teachers in the afternoon. Oh, so a lot of countries I've since found out where, um, you know, who have fallen back in literacy numbers, uh, it's the wisest thing to do. So the first shift would start at whatever seven and go on to 1.30 or 1 or, and then the second shift with a new lot of teachers would come in. Even today we run over a hundred schools in full double shift hmm. in the city of Lahore, 93 in the city of Lahore and the rest are rural. Hmm. So anyway, so um, that was, and by 2014 we were already educating 200,000 children in, in however many schools with not one rupee of support from government ever. Hmm. We have, for any operational costs or anything, we all the, um, we put in, when we adopted the schools, we agreed to put in furniture, a lab and a library in every school, lights and fans, a science lab and a library in every school, fans, lights, and of course, care trained teachers. And that's what we continue to do for all the schools, and it was not government money. It's, hmm. All the work we've done to date is with, with private money raised from corporations, individuals, from people uh, in Pakistan. And uh, anyway, so that was big. When we, so, so government, so in, in 2015, the chief, it was fabulous when the chief minister called this meeting and I was called and said, we've realized that we can't do education and care is a model and we want to, we want to, hand over a lot of schools. We think this is public-private partnership is the way forward, and we want to hand over a lot of schools to private organizations. And, you know, uh, so whatever. Uh, let's make a plan on that, and we will give money with it. Mm. So that was the money they decided to give was very little, uh, which is 700 rupees per month per child at this time. It works out. To, but anyway, so a lot of... And were you able to, like, 
convince them of that? Is it something that they just eventually realize we need to do? What was the no. process like for... I had no process of even asking them. Interesting. See, they could see the work. Just, and if people weren't interested, then, I mean, there's no way I'm going to convince government. No, it came from their own. I don't know how they arrived at that process. But I only know when the chief minister had this in this huge meeting, uh, I was invited to this meeting, and that's exactly what he said. Hmm. And he said, let care be the model. And I said, no, no, there are much better people than us out here, out there. And I actually said, there's, you know, there's beacon house and all the private schools. If you're going to do this, let our children have the best. Let us turn the, the narrative around, turn around the narrative of education in this country. But anyway, by the time it all got structured and put together, so uh, none of the private school systems wanted to work because obviously their costs are higher. We have a di totally different way of looking at it. We just wanted to be able to get to more children. And if we gotten to the 200,000 children with without any support from government. But we were sort of, I, I was feeling at that time that I'm stretched to the limit. And if only we could get in large amounts of money from, or, you know, any money from somewhere, I know that we are capable of uh, of educating many, many more children and go across Pakistan, money was stopping us. So when government said this, I we were thrilled. And so we've added those schools. But uh, government is paying only for 32,000 of the 50,000 children that we've added. They've got very strange processes of evaluating whether the children are there or not. And, mm. you know, whether the child's father, do we have the ID card of his father or his mother? And we actually started getting in touch with Nadra to say, can, you know, issue ID cards to people because that's separate issues. So, yes, it's a... Great inflection point. Today, it's 50,000 children in those adopted schools, mm. but already 225,000 in the ones who nobody pays us anything for. So that's where we stand. But we would like to hit a million children at one time enrolled in our schools. Because whatever we are doing now, I know it's not enough. We want to change the narrative of education. That can only happen if we have a critical mass. And I feel if we have a million children at one time enrolled, we may be able to change the narrative altogether. Mm. And so that's our aim, and we're going to keep um, uh, trying to move towards that. Interesting. Mm. Um, I just wanted to ask a, a last small group of questions about your own sort of personal management style and your own, some of the routines that you've talked about a little bit in the planning and, and what has essentially allowed you to become so effective in, in your role as a leader. And so maybe uh, like one specific kind of question is, um, do you feel that your work in care was really informed by your experiences and insight from CFAM. Were you able to take a lot of your insights from Barize starting up and transferring that? Because I feel like care is built on these systems and on a management style and on a innovation and the same quality 
focus that you have in CFAM? Yeah, it's exactly the same. For me, it's, you know, I guess it's anything that I do. I, uh, so clearly, this experience has taught us. And yes, the management systems are exactly the same. Mm. So one created them for, for Barize too, and the same, or some things I create for care and transfer them here, because it's sometimes the, the number of, you know, the way we were growing in care and the, uh, the, 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 the problems were in some ways huger, the logistical problems and whatever. So it's exactly the same. I believe that uh, management principles are the same, whether you're managing a social enterprise or business. And yes, you're absolutely right. I feel very often that it's because I do the two that I can do them both better than if I'd be able to, you know. Definitely, I i don't know how it would have been, but if there was no CFAM, I, I think care would have been difficult. And, uh, if, and I think in its own way, care too has helped. Uh, obviously, it, it adds a diversity. It helps you grow a, a wider vision. And, mm. and just by doing more is when you can learn more and maybe do it better. Hmm. Yes. That's really fascinating. So there's a great planner, you know, if you, neither one of them was planned and I have understood through all this process that there's another planner. Hmm. This plan was never mine, hmm. but I'm very grateful for the plan. Yeah. And one thing I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, it kind of goes back to this question around doubt, but a little bit more specific around burnout, which is, you're really passionate about your projects or ventures, and yet there's also the risk that you can get too passionate or work too hard or eventually perhaps burn out. So have you ever had any, any moments where you struggled with this and you were able to push through? I mean, obviously you pushed through. So, how did you get past that? Or how do you prevent yourself from having burnout? So balance is very important in life. You know, you can't, so I used to think in the beginning, I thought lots of people around me are waiting to say, ah, you've wrecked your own children and what's the point of doing good work? So I don't know. I think a balance of mind is very important. For me, it was very, very clear forever what has to be top priority. And if you balance it like that, so my children came first, my very, very close to my parents and, you know, the larger family and brothers and sisters and and uh, it's a huge involvement. And uh, so if you balance it like that and you're going to be always uh, home for lunch, so that's really helped until my children grew up and went up away to university or got married and went away. No, no, always home for lunch, always, no matter where I am, back for lunch. You know, it could be a later lunch, but home for lunch. And then close all my work by six or whatever in the evening because then it's again time for I think I forever read to my daughter you don't read to second and third children I think but to the first one <laughs> yes it was absolutely you read to her you do everything right so that's the balance it helps you in not going off track and maybe the other thing I can think of is that you have to do what you enjoy doing and enjoy what you are doing. I so love all that I do. I truly enjoyed the innovation in, in CFAM, in Barize. I still need the design myself. I Maybe from a while, everyone's been saying, and 
you need to have other people doing that and honestly i truly enjoy the innovating and every day all the time when com- we're coming up with new ideas new things new product new ways of doing it and the same of course with care it, it totally moves me what about um, um what yeah. about isolation i mean have you ever felt like you were kind of added alone there wasn't a support group for you some other people you could learn from or trade war stories so who has time for trading stories <laughs> if you work hard enough where's the time yes there were many times when i've thought gosh this is a lonely journey mm-hmm. so the journey of if you want to be uh, uh, to do something which is radically different and think radically different from all those around you or whatever and you don't realize it when you're doing it by the way you don't think you're radically different and you do where your heart and your brain is leading you and you that's what i've done continue to do what i thought was right and every step determine the next i didn't have a greater plan i never thought i you know lots of people have asked me over the years and did you think one day you'd be educating 200,000 children as not at all my heart just moved for those children and the village that i was working in and so that it was just everything was a step and hmm. i don't think i discussed it with anyone Yes it's a lonely journey if you have time for loneliness but one again my children my family that's a huge anchoring and you stay anchored anchored and then of course there's so many joys out there that there's not a lot of time to be to feel the loneliness it is there and then sometimes you really feel like I, you know i feel you're pretty much alone and and a lot of opposition to all that you're doing it's but don't ask for opinions then <laughs> you have to follow your heart and not look for approval i guess that's one thing i've never searched for mm. it's not about approval mm. so that's it why would you like need approval so you enjoying what you're doing and of course again just been lucky and god is so kind and the other thing i feel is that you have to stay with things for me the vision mission is important critically important who are we what do we want to be in the marketplace what will the market miss if we're not there anymore and mm. and so that you straight true to your vision and that's what we've done forever there are price wars going on and all sorts of madness and in all my brands i keep okay remember who are we verse also from our national poet which says that hurdles are only there to help you fly higher any hurdle and any problem is only there to make you think harder hmm. and come up with ways of overcoming it so if you treat it as that then every problem and every hurdle has provided a, a, a learning space hmm. you you learn every day and you go on to not make those same mistakes again you will make new mistakes every day every day you're going to make new mistakes the only crime is to make old mistakes again and again so um i think thank you so much i mean it's an incredible vision like you said um our, our prayers are with you for reaching 1 million uh students and for the for the broader vision of of helping ensure that all children in the country have a chance at a good education thank you